Hello and welcome to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Well, this week I have a third episode for you, and the reason why I'm doing that, it's a Halloween treat for you. I'm interviewing on this episode, Kim Newman. This week, Kim had released Anno Dracula, 1895, Seven Days in Mayhem. It collects the five-issue series, which ties into the novels that he's written about Dracula, including his three books, Anno Dracula, followed by The Blood Red Baron, and then Dracula Cha-Cha-Cha. Kim is a well-known author, and he's also written for The Guardian, The Times, Time Out, and Empire Magazine. He does make appearances on radio and TV, and he has won the Bram Stoker, International Horror Guild, British Fantasy, and British Science Fiction Awards, and has been nominated for the Hugo, World Fantasy, and James Herbert Awards. So we talk about how this collection of the Titan comics ties into his novel. We also talk about various vampires in the movies and what Halloween means to Kim. And immediately following this episode, you're going to find out how you can win two tickets, two weekend passes to the New Jersey Comic Expo. The New Jersey Comic Expo is a family-friendly celebration of comic books and everything pop culture taking place on November 18th and 19th at the New Jersey Convention and Expo Center in Edison, New Jersey. So, listen carefully right after the show, and now we'll get on with my interview with Kim Newman on his trade, Anno Dracula, 1895, Seven Days in Mayhem, collecting the five-issue series published through Titan Comics, here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Here on the East Coast, it's just getting daylight. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Well, I've had a whole morning's work already. So. Oh, good for you. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. We're approaching Halloween, and I wanted to have someone on the show who is a writer of horror, and you're that, and much, much more, of course. You're a writer, a critic, broadcaster, and I do want to discuss the upcoming graphic novel collection of Anno Dracula, but first, I want to just talk about how this all started, kind of walk through it. You were allowed to stay up late one evening when you were 11, and that changed your life. Tell me about that. Um, absolutely, yeah. It was, uh, obviously this is like, I think it's 1970, and um, so that's before all kinds of um, media for disseminating films. So if you wanted to see a movie, basically you had to watch it on television. Um, and I was allowed to stay up late to watch... Uh, Dracula, the Bela Lugosi film from 1931, um, directed by Todd Browning. And kind of that, you know, that encounter with Dracula um, sort of set me on so many different courses in my my life. It's like by the next day, I was a fan of horror films, uh, a fan of Dracula. Um, By the end of the week, I was probably a fan of classic literature because then, of course, Rather than watch the film over and over, which you couldn't because it was uh, yeah, on its way to Alpha Centauri. You read the book, which I did, um, and then I sort of... It, films on TV were shown in seasons, and I think for some reason I missed Dracula's daughter. Maybe my mother wanted to see something that was on the other side. And, um, but I remember seeing Son of Dracula and The Werewolf of London in that same period. Um, so my first experience of, of horror was very much the, the classic universal films of the, the 1930s, um, which were also the films that 
in the late 1950s on American television sort of triggered a whole wave of monster activity. Um, although, yeah, there were there are all kinds of other things floating around in the ether on TV and in the in the cinema or in books, um, evening comics. Um, in that the it was about the same time that the uh, the famous comics code, which had been introduced to crush horror comics in the 1950s, lightened up a bit. So I remember um, characters who weren't quite vampires turned up in uh, DC Comics and Marvel Comics almost in the same month. There was a vampire in uh, Jack Kirby's run on Jimmy Olsen, and Morbius the Living Vampire showed up in um, in The Amazing Spider-Man. Um, and so these creatures were just about, on a level slightly more sort of serious than, say, the Munsters or the Addams Family, which had been around in in the 60s. You know, like you, that's how I watched a lot of those old horror movies. I didn't, you know, it was on television broadcast, so I had to wait for it to show up. I had to check the TV guide listings. And actually stay awake as well sometimes. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. uh, because in Britain, uh, I, I remember the a little later, there was a tradition in the summers of having seasons of horror movies on Saturday nights, and they tend to show a... Um, a relatively modern film, a Hammer film or a Roger Corman, Edgar Allan Poe movie, and a classic, uh, usually a universal picture, but a, uh, uh, yeah, a 1930s or 40s film. But sometimes between the two movies, they'd show highlights of the day's cricket or, sp or other sporting fixtures, which of course meant that the horror fan either had to sit there and watch this thing, struggling to stay interested, you know, while presumably the cricket fans had been bored stiff by, by watching Mask of Fu Manchu to get to it. But uh, So yeah, no, there was a sense of achievement and collection as well. I mean, um, when I first sort of read books about horror films, there were long lists in them about of all the movies that were, were around, which weren't at the time in general rotation on, on British television. Um, I, it's like we didn't really get, say, the, the Val Luton films until like the early 1980s. Um, yeah, I, even, I remember... Uh, Sometime in, say, something like 1974, 1975, the Astaire Rogers musicals were on British television for the first time. Wow. Um, uh, which seems sort of astonishing now. Um, but certainly, and my education in classic cinema was very much um, curated by the BBC, who, who, when they showed films, they tended to show them in seasons. So you would get like all the Marx Brothers films or a run of John Ford's Westerns or all those kind of things. So as a teenager, all that stuff was kind of available to me. Weirdly, in today's sort of multi-channel streaming download environment, in theory, almost everything is available. But however, it's kind of inaccessible. It's, it's the, what was great about film on broadcast television is it was just there. And in Britain, there are only three channels, so you didn't have the you know the temptation to switch away from it. What was it about horror that attracted you to it? I mean, because other kids were into superheroes and things like that. Oh, I'd gone through a a big Marvel comics period just before, um, so in the late sixties. I mean, actually, which was a great period for for Marvel. Um, yes. 
I'd, yeah, I, I remember, again in Britain, there were black and white reprints and, and you could get imported Marvel Comics. And so taking on board, as it were, that, that first 10 years from... Um, you know, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and, uh, and right, yeah, when the stories were advancing in real time um, and when um, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko were really opening up the, the floodgates of sort of weirdness. You know, it's like over at DC, Lois Lane was still trying to get Clark to take his glasses off and the Fantastic Four were fighting God. Yeah. <laughs> that, that. So I, yeah, and I was, yeah, and British... TV culture in the 60s, there was um, Doctor Who and the Avengers and the Prisoner. And, and so, yeah, there were all these sort of things which I'd liked as, as kids. But somehow I responded to horror, maybe to monsters, um, with, a, with slightly more focus. I think, um, yeah, in, there was a sense that quite a lot of the really cool stuff in the 1960s was still mainstream culture it was still something that all kids watched yeah thunderbirds or doctor who um whereas when in the the 70s i was getting into horror it wasn't something that all kids um were into and it and it and it did i mean i became like the kid at our school who liked monsters yeah um but also again it may well have changed my relationship to uh yeah, fiction. And in fact, as soon as I saw those, those movies, I started wanting to write stories about those characters. Um, one of my very first sort of attempts at writing fiction was like a two-page play version of Dracula that um, I got my friends to put on in our drama class at school. Um, and then I went through a period of doing that, of writing uh, increasingly elaborate sort of uh, monster themed plays with uh, I, I, I think I yeah I did all the, the the great monster characters probably bits of Anno Dracula are actually descended from from that stuff certainly my um, uh, my book The Man from the Diogenes Club which is due out again from Titan features characters who first appeared in the tiny little plays I wrote as an 11 and 12 year old and and say so got my friends somehow to act out. Well, moving forward to 1978, when you were at university, you became fascinated with alternate history. Yeah, I loved those stories. I don't quite know what I... I think I I may have picked that. I mean, obviously, I'd read a few of those um, novels because they were around. I'd read The Man in the High Castle and maybe... Not, not quite the sound of his horn, which I like like a lot more actually than the dig. I um, I know it was something that Kingsley Amis was very keen on, and he wrote a book called New Maps of Hell about, which was one of the first sort of serious-ish books about science fiction, and he particularly highlighted a, a strain of that science fiction. I remember reading Harry Harrison's A Transatlantic Tunnel Hurrah, which it, it which I don't cite often enough as an influence on me, but it was it was one of those books that was sort of revelatory. And um, Keith Roberts' Pavan is another one. Ward Moore's Bring the Jubilee. Those kinds of, I suppose now they they're rather tentative as alternate history, and they tend to deal with 
sort of postmodern things and time travel as well. There was a sense that in order to have an alternate history, you kind of had to tinker with the time stream in a way that we could get from here to there, in the way that you have to go to Narnia through a wardrobe, but Middle Earth is just there. Um, it took a while to get to the just there. Even the man in the high castle and a transatlantic tunnel have an awareness that this timeline is wrong, that there's a whole thread in them, that, that what's going on shouldn't be going on. Um, but so that had stuck in my mind. And also at university, um, I got very interested in H.T. Wells. So I suppose it was an old enthusiasm, but also Victorian science fiction. Michael Moorcock edited a couple of really good anthologies of Victorian science fiction that made me look at authors outside of, of Wells. And I was taught a, a course by Professor Norman Mackenzie, who was Wells' biographer, and actually knew Wells, which really, really impressed me. And Lawrence Lerner, who was an interesting minor poet, um, who wrote a, a series of, of poems about uh, an intelligent computer. Um, and under the, sort of their tutelage, I, I worked on this um, it began as an essay, but ended as an end-of-term thesis um, about, um, I called it the secular apocalypse, but it was about turn-of-the-century invasion narratives and end-of-the-world stories. And in that, I wrote about things like War of the Worlds, Worlds but also the Battle of Dorking and When William Came, um, which are invasion narratives, stories of of Britain occupied and reduced to rubble and, and taken over. I mean, I, I, I was familiar with those. I mean, you got them on Doctor Who. You know, it's like <laughs> Daleks invasion Earth is an invasion narrative, obviously. And uh, all those John Wyndham um, books that I'd, I'd read as a, a kid fed into that as well. But I did a footnote where I said that Bram Stoker's Dracula could be considered an invasion narrative because Dracula sort of sets himself up as a conqueror However, the book doesn't then go in that direction. We don't find out what Dracula's real plans for Britain were when he moves here. Um, and that little footnote just stuck in the back of my head for years. Um, and I started thinking, well, I could write an alternate novel, <laughs> alternate world novel, in which Dracula does invade Britain. And that became Anno Dracula. But that's like a lot of my novel length fictions. It kind of percolated for well over 10 years before I wrote a word. You know, you have these things where there are ideas in the back of your head, sort of growing like coral reefs, bits and pieces stick to them. And eventually there's some push comes that, that, that makes you write it. And I think it was in the, the early 90s, I wrote a, a novella version for a Steve Jones anthology. And almost immediately, immediately after that, went to write um, the first Anno Dracula novel. Um, it took me a while to come up with a title, I remember, and also, um, although I had, had a notion that it would be more than just one book, I think originally um, my conception was a trilogy, because, you know, fantasy trilogies were a big thing then. And then I realized it wasn't quite like that. It wasn't one coherent narrative. It was a world which I could explore or fill in or play around with. 
Um, yeah, and I have been doing now for yeah quite a long time. When this was initially conceived, when you were kind of kicking this around, one of the people you were bouncing ideas off of was Neil Gaiman. Yeah, that's right. We were working a lot together. There was a there was a point where we were even thinking of doing it in collaboration. Although basically he was going to write the middle book, but yeah, um, uh, for one thing or other, we had lots of projects that we didn't get round to doing, and uh, because we were doing other things. Yeah. Do you still kick around ideas with him? Um, if if I see him, I mean, he doesn't live in the same country as I do anymore. But <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's we've we've. We've still got a whole bunch of things we've never done, um, sort of lying on dead computers, sort of outlines for, for things, many of which it was more fun just to have the outlines than to, to actually do the work, uh, many of which were a kind of lunatic ambition. Um, Eugene Byrne, a British novelist who's a friend of ours, was also in the room while we were doing all that that stuff. When you first came up with this idea of a trilogy, you were looking at uh, the late 1880s to the First World War, but that changed over time. You actually went beyond that. Now, why'd you change that? Well, I suppose when I realized I didn't want to write a, I mean, and also that as a trilogy, it would have been much more focused on a story that would have a beginning and an, and an end. And I think there I was thinking of Dracula as a central character rather than doing what Stoker did and kind of keeping him as a, a peripheral character because I think he's scarier if you don't spend that much time with him. And also, in, I, I, in the end, in the Anno Dracula books, I decided that every time you meet Dracula, he'd be different. Um, so, yeah, I, once I got out of that, and also it's that sort of thing that... Yeah, and the the only um, franchise I can think of that came up with an actual definitive end to its story is Beneath the Planet of the Apes, where at the end the bomb blows up and all life on Earth is destroyed. However, that didn't stop them making sequels. <laughs> so my my feeling was that I don't want to... Uh, just keep turning these things out uh, until everybody's fed up with them. I do tend to sort of leave gaps between them. And it's been sort of, I, I don't know how successful I've been at it, but I'm, I try to every time make the book different or the story, or even though I'm doing comics as a different media, not, although characters do recur and there are people within the world that I'm, I'm fond of and, and readers seem fond of and want to know more about. It's, it's more that I sort of think, oh, well, yeah, now, as, as with the, the, the new one, it's sort of, what if I go, go to a different part of the world? And also there are sort of genres, I think. I mean, I've done kind of crime stories and spy stories and a First World War story and a sort of fun shopping story. Um, and I'm, I've, I think the next one I do is going to be sort of cyberpunk, uh, um, retro-futuristic uh, sort of turn-of-the-millennium business, maybe with giant robots. You know? uh, it's like there, there's a whole universe of, of, yeah, of different types of fiction, all of which seem to have some kind of relationship to, to the way the world works. Um, one of the... I mean, I've probably a big influence on me in general as a writer, but in particular on the Anno Dracula books is uh, Richard Condon, who wrote The Manchurian Candidate. Um, 
and I I like the idea of using um, popular fiction sort of genres um, to anatomize uh, yeah society and politics. So I, I think although there are elements of all kinds of um, story in the Anno Dracula books, they are sort of basically satire, um, although not always funny. <laughs> but but satire in that in that sort of 18th century cartoon sense of showing you a, a grotesque version of the of the real world. I understand that you spend a lot of time researching the period and the source material, Stoker's material, to get everything, all the details right. Um, well, it's a fantasy, so you don't have to get all the details right. There is that thing, I mean, anybody who writes anything with a historical um, setting has to go through you know, what were light switches like? You know, when were um, ordinary homes electrified? When was the zip fastener invented? All those kind of bits and pieces. Um, though the, there is a sort of excuse that the, the world of Anno Dracula is slightly different technically from our world. It's got, it's got vampires in it. It's got magic in it. It's got a certain amount of sort of high-tech, stuff in it that, that we don't have. This is purely because Stoker used a, a slightly more sophisticated dictaphone in his book than actually existed at his time. So I'm assuming that the, the world of Dracula is already in a, a kind of slightly technologically advanced alternate world. But I do, um, yeah, I read a lot of what you know, whatever I'm work, working on, I try and read around it a lot and listen to music of the period uh, and place and you know, watch movies that are set there because there's a sense that I'm visiting not just a historical past but a fictionalized historical past. That's one, that's the reason for using all these characters bo borrowed from other people's stories in a mid. Um, historical characters. So I want to sense, it's like I know that Victorian London ha was not entirely as it is depicted in Hammer films, but kind of Anno Dracula is set in the Hammer films version of Victorian London, not the real one. Um, I've written other things which are much closer to uh, you know, real historical fictions. The, the Professor Moriarty book I did has a lot more of, of that in. But with these books, I'm, I'm yeah, it's in, in a way, I just kind of want to enjoy myself while, while tackling quite, you know, weighty, serious matters. I, I, I try not to lose sight of the, of the fact that the books have to be fun. Um, I, and I think that may well be one of the reasons why the series has, has lasted, if, if not solely for readers, but I am interested enough to go back and do, do them, is that uh, there are still things I want to do within the world. Now, comic book fans can be very loyal to their characters, and if something isn't the way they like it, they will voice their opinion on social media. They can really nitpick a character. Do you ever get any feedback like that? Like, oh, this isn't right, or oh, this isn't in the spirit of? Very occasionally. I've had people point out to me that, I've, that there are inconsistencies between the books, which is true, because they were written over a long period of time. <laughs> So, and in the the latest editions, I have invisibly sorted out a few of those, but there are one or two that are still there that I didn't catch before they went into print, so I'm just stuck with them. Um, and in my use of other characters, I think it's always a sense that they, 
yeah, because my setting is mine and it's not the real world, it doesn't really matter so much that my version of, um, I don't know, Inspector Lestrade or Raffles or um, characters I've borrowed from Henry James or wherever aren't like they are in the original creator's books because they're not supposed to be. They're sort of adaptations. I mean, quite often, you know, they're sort of vampire versions of famous characters or in some cases not particularly famous characters. But um, I've not had that much. I think I remember one or two, um, as it were, traditional pulp fans weren't particularly happy with my depiction of some characters in the bloody red baron um but yeah that that's the way we go you know and i've quite often looked at characters who are sort of considered heroic um and depicted them as either villainous or idiots uh yeah but in that i think one of my big influences is the um robert aldrich's film of uh, mickey spillane's Kiss Me Deadly, where Robert Aldrich plainly hates Mike Hammer, um, and there's a sort of thing you want, yeah. What, you know, a here is a hero who acts like that really a hero? Um, and I've done that, I suppose, a bit with my kind of vampire equivalent of James Bond is 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 kind of a dick. But then again, the character in the books is as well. Now you mentioned you touched upon this that the latest book coming out, I believe it comes out tomorrow. Uh, yeah, although it's been around in shops for weeks, as usual these days, yeah. Well, the title is 1,000 Monsters, Anno Dracula 1000. It used to be, I believe, Daikaju? Uh, that will be the next But What happened ah, was, okay. while I was working on... Uh, uh, the the book I set out to write was, to say, this cyberpunk-type thing, which was would be called... Uh, I'm still not sure what it'll end up being called, but my working title is Anno Dracula 1999 Daikaiju. Um, which is set in Tokyo at the eve of the millennium in a big building shaped like a giant dinosaur. Um, But I decided that there needed to be an 1899 prologue that sort of explained how European vampires got to Japan. Um, And and also one of the characters from the comic book was going to be big in the the thing, and I needed to show her arrival in Japan and how, how she sort of... Uh, accommodates herself to the local culture and yeah there I was like yeah working on my prologue and I realized I was sort of 35,000 words into it and what's more I really wanted to include a flashback sequence that took place before the prologue and so I realized I was I was on the point of writing a very long novel which had a rather unwieldy structure so i decided it was going to be two books um they're both or uh, this one at least i haven't written the the next one yet they're both self-contained they both have ending so do you plan to have all of your novels eventually adapted as comic books Oh, no, no. I've, um, my plan is to have none of my novels adapted as comic books. My, I don't like those comics, actually, that, <laughs> you know, where it's the book you've already read, but mm-hmm. subbed down to almost nothing, but with some pretty pictures. No, my plan is not to do any of those. Um, when Titan um, started publishing, republishing the older Anna Dracula books and doing the new ones and becoming my primary fiction publisher um it was you know raised very early on that they have a comics line and they i mean they sort of started out as a comics publisher um 
And they said, you know, could we do an Anno Dracula comic? And my, my answer was yes, but there are two conditions. One is that I write it. Um, at that time, I hadn't written any comics. Subsequently, I've written um, a, 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 a Witchfinder miniseries for Dark Horse, uh, which I co-wrote with uh, Maura McHugh. Um, and the other condition was that it not be, yeah, the, one of the novels turned into a comic, that it be a, a new story. But also then I started thinking, well, if it's going to be a new story, I want it actually to have, to fit into the established continuity of the books. It, I also felt that I needed to, because new readers were going to be coming in on this, I needed to do something that went back close-ish to the first book. So it's a, um, a sort of Victorian London novel, uh, well, um, story. Um, later books may later comics may well add on to other bits of the um the series but anyway this this one i i thought i'd go back not quite to the beginning but close to the beginning and i'd use some of the characters from anno dracula the novel and and subsequent things but also i wanted it, what happened in the the comic to affect the overall saga it's actually quite a complicated thing filling in gaps without contradicting things i've already established and there are a few sort of annoying things that I would have, I would change if I, if I had planned out this whole thing when I started, there are things I wouldn't have done, but you know, that's the, the downside of working this way. Um, and Titan were very responsive. Um, say the, the editors, they were very good. They, they found a, um, newish artist, Paul McCaffrey, who actually lobbied for the job. He's been a, a fan of the series since it started, um, and it's been a very um, happy collaboration on this. I, 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 uh, I still feel I'm kind of learning um, writing comics, although I've been reading them, uh, you know, as I said, since, since the 1960s. So um, I'm very familiar with the, the medium. So, folks, this is not the Cliff Notes version of the books. You still have to read the books if you want to read them and enjoy the comics. <laughs> yeah, the, I think the thing I wrote was that it's probably better if you come to the comic having read the first novel, but in issue one of the comic, there's like a one-page story so far, um, uh, a precy of, or at least it restates the premise. So I, I think it's possible that comics readers can come into this with this book. Um, there's a certain amount of, of, of fudging. So um, this book... It doesn't spoil the ending of the uh, of the novel, um, even though of course the ending of the novel is something that would be public knowledge in this world. But um, there, there is a, a you know, a canny readers will notice absences. You thought about or considered doing maybe a western in which Edgar Allan Poe tracks down a blood drinking Billy the Kid. Yep, that's right. And that had me thinking about a film I saw, and I don't know, maybe you saw it too, I'm sure you have since you've watched many of these, Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Yeah, that was one of the things I thought of. The other movie I was thinking of was Curse of the Undead from 1958 with Michael Pate as a, uh, a vampire conquistador who's an all-in-black gunslinger. So yeah, I wanted to do something like that. But the, 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 kind of, the reason that sort of on the back burner is annoyingly there's an Uwe Boll film called Blood Rain 
three deliverance i think is which um <laughs> which has a vampire billy the kid so and i the, i don't want to be accused of, of imitating uve ball so <laughs> so we're not doing that in uh 1000 monsters i do actually uh, because in in anno dracula i talk a bit about vampire billy the kid in 1000 monsters i talk a bit about um, the the gunfight at the OK Corral and the kind of weirder version of that. Um, so that I, I, maybe I'll just keep dropping hints and, and names and mentioning Western characters throughout, and so in the end it will, will add up to a, a Western story. It, it is slightly outside the um, sort of the mainstream thrust of the the narrative, which uh, for, for convenience almost the the first book is about britain and then the subsequent books sort of expand to take in the the rest of the world and johnny alucard which is my book sort of about the the 1970s and 80s is the book where vampires come in in numbers to america so doing a vampire western would be a bit of an outlier for that but you know, I might well do it eventually, but uh, um, I have a few other things that I'm, I'm interested in. Maybe I'll do it as a comic. That would that would fit in. Since you mentioned one of the uh, the famous B movies, Billy the Kid versus Dracula, you recently had a book come out, or it's coming out very soon, Video Dungeon about arcane films. Yeah. Is was there anything? And of course, I want people to read this. But was there any films that you reviewed and looked at that you was like, wow, that was one that really stands out as a very good B movie that surprised me. Oh, loads. Um, of course, none come to mind immediately. But yeah, no, my approach to uh, that kind of stuff, the point of that book, and it's probably going to be the first of a of a series, because I've got so much material of all the films I've seen and taken notes on, was to review films that you can't find that many reviews of. And of course, many of them are uh, you know, uh, negligible or, or you know, rubbish. Um, but there are a bunch of things there that, that are interesting. I mean, and I always try and um, home in on on the kind of cooler things that, uh, that are going on in uh, in even the most marginal offerings. So no, I've I've, I've uh, yeah, I have a wealth of of good experiences with non mainstream cinema. So as we uh, start to wrap up here, I don't want to take too much of your time. That's all right. I just have some fun questions to learn a little bit more about you. I ask these of all my guests. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation? Um, <laughs> this is going to sound strange, but nothing. Uh, the thing <laughs> is, I don't, you know, I'm one of those people who's lucky enough that all the things that would be their hobbies are actually a part of my job. Yeah. Um, I, you know, yeah, lying down, reading comics and uh, watching movies. I kind of have to do that. Yeah, um, and reading and so I mean for relaxation I probably do social things, hang out with friends. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> sit in cafes and restaurants. Yeah, wander around London a bit, all that, that sort of stuff. But there's this thing about writing, and many of my friends are also writers. Is you're never off. There's no off switch. Uh, whatever you do, whatever you're thinking, no matter how small or trivial or seemingly irrelevant. Um, will probably eventually filter back into your fiction. Uh, every piece of music you listen to, every book you read, every film you watch, every newspaper, yeah, it's sort of stored away somewhere and may um, 
yeah, <laughs> funnel back into your work. Hey, this is a hypothetical question. You're stuck on a deserted island. Yeah. What is the one book that you would want to have with you? Probably some big, thick anthology of short stories I've not read before. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know if you know these uh, books in America, but they were around in the 1930s, and I've, I've collected a bunch of them, and they're called things like A Century of Thrillers or A Century of Creepy Stories, and they're these thousand-page anthologies. I think they were mostly given away by newspapers. Um, and I remember getting several of these as a kid and taking years to read them. Yeah. Uh, and, they, and they're a mix of, you know, real classic authors like yeah, Edgar Allan Poe, um, M.R. James, but also of people who were then modern, um, Algernon Blackwood, but also authors who are now completely forgotten. Alan Fair is one who, who sticks in my mind for some particular reason, also known as A.A. Fair. I think he wrote stories specifically to be read on the radio, but he was a, a yeah, sort of interesting minor British writer. But So you'd have these thousand-page books that were, yeah, you could, as I say, you could eke them out over years. And I think that's what I'd want for a desert island. If you could find a, one of those which was all stories I'd not read before, yeah, which might be quite difficult. Sure. Uh, yeah, before I'm cast away, you might have to commission somebody to edit this. Um, <laughs> the, there are, the, nowadays, you have these things which are called like the Mammoth Book of short stories. I've been in a bunch of those. Stephen Jones, a friend of mine, has edited a bunch of, of, of those. The first bit of Anno Dracula was even in, in one of those. But they're not quite, they're not as long as the century of um, books were. Um, but yeah, they, I think they have the same sort of value for money feel, uh, the same sense of sort of rediscovery or discovery of, of great works. When you're out hanging with friends, what is your drink of choice? Um, strawberry champagne. I haven't heard that one before. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Just some bonus questions because I wanted to ask you about some of these things. Yeah, sure. I'm a fan of Doctor Who, especially the classic Doctor Who, and I, I understand you did a, a BFI classic series on. Uh, yeah, and it's also it's a show I grew up with, but then it, almost every everybody my age did. Yeah, it, because now, even though it's a sort of big popular success again, it's still sort of what people think of as a cult program. It's not the the kind of stuff everyone watched, but in the '60s, basically every kid watched Doctor Who. It was like, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was like every kid supported a football team. You know, it was not a a nerd or an outsider uh, enthusiasm. I actually miss the idea that that yeah, our culture was kind of mass culture, um, and I think actually Doctor Who is, is was best when it was um, kind of least interested in impressing its own fan base. But yeah, I know what you mean. I agree. Yeah. Do you have a favorite classic Doctor, and why? Oh, William Hartnell, because I because he was the Doctor. Yeah, everybody else is either a variation on him, uh, or um, is you know trying to be different from him. Uh, it's like yeah, he created the character. Yeah, I pro I would probably say William Gillette was the best Sherlock Holmes as well on the uh, on the same basis. Um, but, uh, and I do actually I think that the original rationale which was Sidney Newman's and Verity Lambert's of having your leading man not be 
amiable or handsome or young, but be being a crotchety old git was actually brilliant. And I think that sometimes the the show in his various incarnations, and obviously they can't all be the same or it doesn't work. Um, whenever Doctor Who tries to be nice or kindly or sort of uh, admirable, he sort of gets a bit soft and soppy. And I, 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 I miss the kind of, the 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 ruthlessness but also there's a the, uh there's a an integrity to Hartnell's performance yeah and even in some of the later doctors there was kind of a a, a shortness of temper sometimes just to kind of get to the point of something and be yeah. much more direct i should say mm-hmm. do you have a favorite actor who played dracula of all the dracula films you've seen difficult i think you know uh, lugosi is the one to beat but i think christopher lee was probably scarier Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it's maybe because I, in my books I go with the Dracula of many faces. I like quite a lot. I mean, actually, most recent performances of Dracula have been pretty poor. I haven't seen a. I, I really like the the dancer who plays him in Guy Madden's film, but all other sort of Draculas in the last twenty thirty years, I think, have been rather weak. You know, I think Louis Jordan was really interesting. Max Schreck in Nosferatu. Oh, yes. probably the, yeah. But I'm not sure if he even really counts as Dracula, even though in some versions he's called Dracula. And in Klaus Kinski's version, he's called Dracula. But he's sort of a different character, a kind of related character. In my books, I make them two different people. Udo Kier, I really like in the... Um, Blood for Dracula. Yeah, I really like Christopher Lee, and I was actually, while working on my notes here, I was rewatching Dracula uh, from 1958. And two things always kind of bother me about the movie, even though it looks great and he's such an imposing figure. One, Jonathan Harker, when he goes to the crypt to, um, or into the basement of his castle, he kills the female vampire first. Mm, and I was yeah. like, bad strategy. <laughs> really yeah. bad and the sun goes down like someone has a dimmer switch. It's like, boom, it's dark. You're done. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I really love that movie. But one of the things I find about that, and Curse of Frankenstein as well, is that Jimmy Sangster's scripts look to me like first drafts. If you look at Brides of Dracula and Revenge of Frankenstein, the sequels, both of those have Jimmy Sangster scripts, but then other writers are credited as having done polishes on them. I think Sangster was really good at sort of boiling down these big, complicated novels to something direct and smooth. But on a, and he has really vivid versions of the familiar characters, but on a kind of scene by scene plot plot point basis they quite often don't make any sense in curse of frankenstein um peter cushing's baron frankenstein tells the whole story to a priest as he's about to be guillotined for the murders that the monster committed but in the story he confesses to another murder he hasn't been accused of um yeah which is just ridiculous <laughs> last question halloween is almost upon us and yeah. what does the holiday mean to you and how do you keep it each year well Halloween, when I was growing up, wasn't a particularly big thing in, in Britain because we had November the 5th, a week later, Guy Fawkes Night, which was our autumn sort of fireworks go out, yeah, burn a guy in effigy, all that kind of stuff. Holiday. And Halloween was sort of an American thing. We were only really familiar with it through Meet Me in St. Louis or when there'd be like a Halloween special of... American TV shows. I know. I remember laughing doing a Halloween special with Vincent Price and Orson Welles. Um, 
And so it's never really caught on for me. Obviously now, uh, because of who I am and the career I have, it, October tends to be a very busy month, but also I tend to get too many offers of things to do. So every Halloween, I have to turn down four or five really cool things uh, in order to concentrate on whatever I'm doing first. This Halloween, oddly enough, it's the book launch for um, the um, Anna Dracula novel and the comics. So that's what I'm doing this year. Um, but mostly, I think Halloween means... At, and I, it's sort of coincidental that my novels tend to be published in October. Um, but it does mean that I spend quite a lot of time doing stuff like this, doing interviews and, uh, and radio. And I'm doing, let's, uh, I'm going to Ireland for a, a, an event this weekend. And I'm back in London to, to do the, the book launch. I'm doing a, hosting a screening of The Shining this week. I'm doing a, um, a symposium on Edgar Allan Poe in a week or so's time. So, yeah, it's like a busy time of year. That's, that's kind of what Halloween means to me. Uh, I suppose it's like being a department store Santa. You know, you've only really got <laughs> December when, you, when, you, when your diary's filled in. Um, <laughs> well, Kim, thanks so much for making time for the show. And, thank you. Uh, no, happy to do it. Uh, and, and best um, of luck with both books. Thank you. And thank you, Kim Newman, for that great interview. Now, folks, here's your chance to win two passes, two weekend passes to the New Jersey Comic Expo. As I said, it's a family-friendly event, comic books and everything pop culture taking place on the weekend of November 18th and 19th. That's the weekend before Thanksgiving here in the U.S. at the New Jersey Convention and Expo Center in Edison, New Jersey. The New Jersey Comic Expo is a place for comic book fans, geeks, and creatives to come together as a community and revel in the fun and entertainment with events featuring the Library Science Center. That's something new this year. Cosplay, workshops, celebrity and creator guests, and a lot more. Here's how you can enter to win two weekend guest passes. If you follow the show, I'm on Twitter, and I post on Twitter when a new episode becomes available with who the guest is and a link to the show. When I do that, Follow me on Twitter, retweet the episode and comment about it, and add the hashtag NJCE, that's NJCE. Between now and November 10th, that's Friday at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, November 10th. That is the deadline, after which I will select at random a winner to receive two weekend passes to the expo. It's that simple. That's all you have to do. I will announce the winner on Twitter, and I'll ask you to reach out to me through direct message with all the information I need to get you those tickets. Okay, simple enough. So, good luck, and may your Halloween be filled with treats and not tricks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creator Talks. The podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't miss a single episode each Thursday. Subscribe, it's free. A new interview will be available each week, and sometimes there'll be a second, maybe even a third interview that week. You can send me feedback and comment on social media. I can be reached at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also available on Instagram, Creator Talks Pod. There I will post pictures while I'm on location, as well as my Saturday Silver Age or Older and Sunday Bronze Age Spotlight comics from my personal collection. Don't forget to visit my website, creatortalks.com. There I have listed the latest episode on the homepage, plus a playlist of all the episodes to date that you can listen to online or download. 
In addition, on the site I will be posting my recommended reading picks as well as written interviews with creators. Also on my YouTube channel are video interviews with creators on location at comic conventions and elsewhere. I know you have a lot of entertainment to choose from and a lot of podcasts to choose from as well. And I thank you for making the time to listen to this one, your best source for comic book writers, artists, and creators. There are more interviews in the works, and you never know who it might be. It is my distinct honor and privilege to speak to these creators and bring you those interviews each week. I'd like to thank my executive co-producer, who makes this possible, Mrs. Calloway. That's all for now. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.